The podcast at DC is brought to you by The Lab at DC, an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor for the District of Columbia. We're working every day to apply scientific insights and methods to improve district policies and programs. Learn more at thelab.dc.gov. I'm David Yoakum, director of The Lab at DC. Today on the podcast, we're exploring police training in the district. We're joined by Rosa Brooks and Christy Lopez of Georgetown Law School and Ben Heyman of the Metropolitan Police Department. Particularly in recent years, the U.S. has experienced strained relationships between the police and the communities they serve. From Black Lives Matter to Blue Lives Matter movements, there is rampant discord and disconnect. So in the summer of 2017, D.C. decided to do something else about it. Georgetown and MPD teamed up to launch the Police for Tomorrow Fellowship with 20 young officers. Rosa kicks us off. The purpose of this program is really to create within the Metropolitan Police Department a cohort of officers and civilians who are really thoughtful and really creative about all these really tough issues that are facing policing. I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that there's, there's a nationwide crisis of confidence in policing. And we want to make sure, you know, this is the police department in the nation's capital. We believe this department should be at the cutting edge of reflecting on those issues and coming up with some of the solutions. When did the program start? What was kind of the genesis of Mm -hmm. this? The the genesis of the program, um, I'm a reserve police officer here in D.C., and when I was going through the police academy, it was a period in which debates about policing and police misconduct were, were occurring really all over the country. And the whole country was talking about this. Do we have a crisis in policing? But the one place it felt like we weren't really talking about all those issues was the police academy, because the curriculum is very focused on practical skills. It's very focused on you know, here are the rules governing automobile searches. Here's how you put a pair of handcuffs on. It just felt very strange to be learning to be a police officer and never having these conversations. I mean, obviously, recruits would talk to each other about these issues out in the halls because how could you not? But in the classroom at the academy, the instructors weren't saying, yeah, let's talk about the role of police in a democratic society. Yeah, well, let's talk about what are the complexities of being a police officer in a society that has these terrible racial disparities. You know, how does that affect your work? Does it affect your work? Should it affect your work? Et cetera. So, so the, the origin was the conversations that I had with people, my fellow uh, reserve recruit officers, some of the career recruits. And what we ended up doing was saying, you know, there, there should be some way both to have those conversations and also to recognize there are, there are a lot of people who are involved in protest movements who are very upset about what they see as police abuses, and they're not the enemy. They're, they're people whose ideas and energy 
should be part of the conversations that police departments are having about what should we do differently, how can we do things differently. So this program was originally uh, conceptualized as a way to create a fellowship program that might bring into Metropolitan Police Department people who would never have thought, oh, I want to be a cop, ever. Um, who might have thought, no, I not in a million years, no way, not me, I don't like the police, I'm very critical of the police, as a vehicle to say to them, you know, actually, we, we this police department wants your ideas, come and see what it's like, see what the challenges and the opportunities are in a major metropolitan police department. What we realized then, as we sort of batted these ideas around, was that just for all kinds of boring logistical reasons, it's not so easy to bring in people from the outside not least if you want to be a cop in Washington, D.C., you've got to go through a daunting series of steps in the application process, getting background investigations and medical exams and psychological exams and you name it. And it takes a really long time. And we wanted to start a program soon. And we didn't want to wait for you know a couple of years to advertise it and get new people in through the pipeline. So what we decided to do at that stage with cooperation and and assistance from the leadership of the department, we were really pleasantly surprised. We were a little bit fearful of maybe MPD is not going to like this. They're just going to think, why would we want to do that? Who needs it? We don't want to have those conversations. But in fact, from the chief on down, uh, we, we got tremendous support from the department in putting this program together. And we decided the way to start quickly was to start by focusing on people who are already working for the department, recruits in the academy and, we, and people who had been hired within a year. Are you seeing any I mean, maybe it's too early to tell, but are you seeing any interest in people applying who kind of fit the bill of not someone you would have historically seen being interested in working for the department that now wants to? Too early to say. Uh, You know, we we actually kept a relatively low profile deliberately for this because it was an experiment. And when we started it, we thought this could be a total disaster. This this might be a flop. So let's not write a bunch of op-eds saying what a great program we have and then have it fall apart. Um, so we kept it very low profile because we wanted to make sure it was going to work. I think we're now at the point where we're sort of finally at the point where we feel like, okay, this works. And I hope that that will also be something that can be used by the department as a recruiting tool to say to people, you don't have to be a certain kind of person. I think people often think, well, only a certain kind of person becomes a cop. You know, you got to be a kind of law and order, hardline type and... And, you know, male, you got to be male, you got to be, you got to be a guy. And, and I think that this, you know, helps the department send a message that the department wants to send anyway, which is, no, they're all different kinds of police officers. And we need all different kinds of police officers, including people who are really critical of how policing works in America. And we want you to come here and we want you to be part of this conversation. And we want you to be part of making this department better. Ben, I'd be curious, your perspective from MPD's viewpoint, why this program and how it fits in with your existing academy training. This is really the future of training. The topics that have come up are things that our officers care deeply about. They're things that they want to talk about, they want to engage with, uh, and they want to learn more about. This has been a mechanism to start that conversation. We've partnered with a bunch of different units throughout the department to give each one of our fellows a mentor. And this is a senior member of the department, so whether it's a captain or a commander or a chief, that is assigned one-on-one to serve as a knowledgeable mentor for the young officer. 
and they come to some but not all the workshops. We didn't actually want them at all of the workshops because initially we were a little bit worried that our fellows might feel like they couldn't speak candidly about difficult issues with senior officers sitting there. We discovered when we invited them to some of our workshops that, in fact, our fellows were not shy at all and they were happy to speak candidly, um, which was a, a nice thing to discover. This has had really two or three impacts, and one of those impacts is that the fellows not only are learning this material and engaging in this material, but their mentors are as well. And so from a leadership perspective, there are now 20 leaders from across the department that are similarly attending these workshops, talking about the material, talking about what this means to the young officers and how this impacts their day-to-day pieces. So as we talk about topics like active bystandership or homelessness, it's not only happening on a boots on the ground from the officer perspective, but also a command perspective as well. So there has been a strong push from the fellows to, in, to incorporate more of this training in our actual academy. We've had meetings internally about the next steps and the future of this partnership with Georgetown. Uh, we're very excited on what that might look like uh, from anything such as taking some of this material actually to the recruit level to expanding to offer this opportunity to people more than their first year on the department. So it's really a first step in in a transformation of a lot of the material at our academy. One of the things that has come out of this, just listening to our fellows, and we've you know we have captains and commanders, lieutenants sitting in the room with these young officers who usually in the daily course of their lives, they're not talking to captains and lieutenants. They're, you know, they see their roll call sergeants, their sergeants, but that's it. They don't have routine contact with higher level people. And our fellows are saying, when I was at the academy, this really horrible thing happened. Or yesterday I was out on the street, you know, this happened and I thought, why don't we do this instead of that? And, and to have the senior people hearing those things, we actually had a session where we, we said to our fellows, knowing what you know now based on your experiences and based on what we've talked about in this program, if you were sitting down with the chief of police, Chief Newsham, and you had an hour and he, he said to you, tell me what I can do to make policing better in Washington, D.C., what would you tell him? And, you know, some of what they came up with was a little goofy. You know, every police officer should have their own take-home police car uh, um, or we should be paid more, uh, that kind of stuff. But some of it was really interesting. You know, here's how we should change the academy or, you know, the problem, the way the shift schedule means that I don't get to have the same kinds of interactions with the same people, which makes it harder for me to do these things that we ought to do. And, and being able to kind of generate, have a group that is coming up with really constructive ideas and get that to the most senior decision makers in the department is really terrific. And I, I don't delude myself that, you know, Chief Newsom's going to say, got it, everybody gets their own take-home car and we're changing, this, you know, the shift schedules or something. But, but to have that conversation be happening, I think, in the long run is, is we hope, going to make this department a better department. So the cohort, they're out of the academy, but within the first year on the street? So our criteria was that all the members had to have less than one year of service. So when we started, actually three of the members were recruits still in the academy. academy. The other sworn members, the other 10 sworn members were officers out on the street, but they were still in some part of either their probationary period or field training. I was just going to ask, why start with this group rather than any other year senior officers? all the rest of America sort of grappling. We've got these millennials and they're coming in and they're less likely than maybe an older generation to just accept that the way we do it is the way we do it because it's the way we do it and the way we've done it. And instead, they're, they're a little bit more likely to say, well, wait a minute, why are we doing it that way? And, and police academies, 
most police academies in this country still have a, a relatively uh, sort of military boot camp style. There's a lot of push-ups. There's a lot of running. There's a lot of yes, sir. Uh, there's a lot of rules and not a lot of, you know, it's not a liberal arts college classroom. It's a, and now we're going to tell you how to do this and you're going to memorize how to do this. And you're going to take a test on how to do this. Uh, and that's the end of that. And we've got a generation that I think in general, looking beyond our fellows groups that are a little bit more inclined to say, you know what, I have a college degree in criminal justice and I don't want to just be told this is the way we do it because it's the way we do it. I want to say, maybe we should do it differently. Or why do we do that? And we've actually had some really fascinating conversations with our fellows, some of whom have encountered some older officers who they find really frustrating. They say, well, I want to ask why and could we do it differently? And they basically tell me to shut up. That's not the way we do it. And you're just a, you know, young whippersnapper and you don't know what you're talking about and you should be seen and not heard. And that's very frustrating to them. And I, I do think that, you know, there's partly there's just a generational shift that maybe this this program can help foster. And I don't mean to say, by the way, there are there are people who've been on the police department here for 30 years who are fantastic, you know, who are incredibly thoughtful, incredibly innovative. But I do think we wanted to get them young because investing in sort of shaping that next generation, I think, pays off in a really profound way. So I won't make you teach the whole course on air right now, but Christy, can you maybe give us a sense of the course material and maybe, maybe talk about one of the days? One of the things I think that's unique about this program is the way that our workshops try to wed the theory and the practice. So, for example, in our workshop on policing juveniles, you know, before the workshop, we assigned readings to the fellows, and they were mostly on juvenile brain development, so they can sort of get a sense of what some of the science is on that. And then we brought in an expert on juvenile brain development and policing juveniles. But we also brought in um, students from local D.C. high schools to talk to officers about what they were experiencing when they were being policed and to have the officers you know, hear from that and to give them their perspective. And it was a way to connect the science on juvenile brain development with what, they were actually, what they're actually doing in policing. And that was one of our fellows' favorite workshops. I think that that overall idea of trying to wed sort of the theory and the science that too often police don't get, so they don't know why we're supposed to be doing what we're doing with their actual day-to-day experience is something that this this program does. It's pretty unique. So tonight, for instance, we're doing a workshop on active bystandership, and, and what we mean by that is, you know, one of the toughest things in, in any um, police department, you know, there's a strong culture of, of loyalty, and you don't you don't rat out your, your colleague, but so then what do you do if you see someone doing something bad? You know, saying something bad, behaving badly, breaking a rule that's really important. What do you do? How can you respond? What tools do you have to respond in a way that's going to be constructive? And there's actually a fantastic program in New Orleans on sort of peer intervention that has really been uh, making a big difference in the New Orleans Police Department. We've got someone coming to speak about that to our fellows, and we have six or seven members of the command staff at the department and mentors who are going to come listen to that as well. So I think one of the things that's sort of neat about it is that it's it's both a way to get these these young fellows talking about these issues that they may not have thought about or give them a different framework for thinking and responding but it also becomes a way to get senior department officials also saying, hey, that's an interesting program. Maybe we want to do something like that here, or you know, maybe our issues are a little bit different, but that makes me think of this other idea. So it, it's been exciting to watch it. 
I want to also mention the materials that are part of this program. So it's not only the in-class activities and the participation there, but it's the read-aheads, it's the articles, it's the professional journals that are shared with the fellows and the mentors uh, to get them talking and thinking and reading about these topics. Generally in police training, that's not the practice. At, at least at the officer level to share professional journals and the biggest trends, some of that trickles down into training. But now we're taking some of these larger uh, pieces and actually having discussions. Hey, this is a hot topic that everybody is talking about right now. Read it. Let's discuss it. And then the fellows are discussing it with their professional mentors, their command as well, on a more personal level. And so it's really having multiple folds beyond just the class itself. One of the things that was really exciting when we when we launched this program. I, I looked around at my colleagues at Georgetown Law and I thought um, it's going to be tough for me to do this by myself. I don't feel like I know enough. I'm a reserve police officer, but my own field is international law and national security law. I didn't feel like I was an expert on criminal justice or police reform issues. But I looked around at my, my colleagues who teach at Georgetown Law and we are fortunate enough, I think, to have one of the strongest faculties in the country on these issues. Christy can talk about her own background a little bit more, but she came to us at Georgetown from the Justice Department, where she worked on investigations of police abuses around the country, including the Ferguson Police Department. Our colleague Paul Butler, both a former prosecutor and a very well-known commentator on issues of race and policing. Our colleague Kristen Henning, runs the Juvenile Justice Clinic at Georgetown Law and represents juvenile defendants in court here in D.C. And our colleague, Sean Hopwood, himself, before he went to college and law school, spent years in a federal prison for bank robberies committed when he was a young man. And he got out of prison. He went to college. He went to law school and has become a very important scholar on sentencing reform and prison reform. And to have people in that group who collectively can say, here's what it's like to be a prosecutor. Here's what it's like to be a defense lawyer working with kids uh, who are getting arrested sometimes for stuff that can feel really unfair to them. Here's what it's like to investigate some of the worst police departments in the country. You know, here's what it's like to be in prison. It's just incredibly powerful, and I, and I think we've been able with that group of people both to tap into an incredible network of other people around the country who are doing this kind of work and having these conversations, but I think even just hearing those voices and having them contribute to the discussions we have in our workshops has been really incredibly powerful. So what do you think the future of this program looks like within MPD? Or or to put that another way, how might you define success for this program? We've talked about how to take some of the lessons that we've learned through this first pilot program to the recruit level for all the recruits to benefit from, and and, and we hope to do so in the near term. I, I have been approached by dozens, if not hundreds now, of officers at varying points throughout their career after having learned of this program, expressing interest so that they too could benefit. And a lot of them come with different experiences that have led them to want to engage in these conversations and these topics. I think one of the things that makes that first year so interesting to focus in on is that is the first time people are really grappling with a lot of these issues out on the street. They're encountering their first time where they're trying to move someone on or trying to have a conversation with someone, and it's just the thought process is is fresh to them, and they have not experienced. At a certain point in the career, people have seen things over and over and over again. And again, that's a very valuable perspective to have, but we're engaging in these topics right from the very beginning, right when they're having those first kind of interactions with you know someone who doesn't want to go to a homeless shelter when it's cold outside. Why? 
Why does a, a young person in particular neighborhoods in D.C. not run to the police and say hello? You know, there's a lot behind that. And when they start to see this as a young officer, to have those conversations and to have the conversation of why, it's very impactful. It certainly would be impactful later in the career as well, but it's a different conversation. You know, year one, we had 19 fellows. We'll start another cohort of about the same number, roughly. In four years, that'll be 80 people. And that starts becoming a sort of critical mass within the department. So that's one piece of it is to maintain this sort of selected cohort of people with strong relationships with senior leaders, because that's really investing in people who we hope will be the future leadership of the department themselves. But I, I, we very much hope that we will be able to bring some of this programming in addition to that selective fellowship program to all of the recruits and, and ultimately to, to work with the department to think about ways to incorporate it into the professional development training for more advanced officers. You know, every year officers are required to have a certain number of hours of, you know, essentially continuing education. There's another piece of this here we're really trying to figure out how do we evaluate the impact of the program over time because in an ideal world you don't want to just say well we had you know x number of fellows and y number of hours of workshops we want to be able to say and it changed something prevented something bad from happening it made something good happen so one of the the pieces that we're trying to build in as we talk to MPD officials about how to expand this is to really think hard about what should we do now that will make it possible for us in two years or five years or 10 years to look back and say, you know, the people who went through that program were more likely to stay, they had fewer civilian complaints, they were better police officers, and, and that's a, a tricky one. I think it's, it can be very hard to figure out the right measures for these. Yeah, I mean, I, th I do think success for us um, in part looks like uh, figuring out how to demonstrate success, and that's both a definitional problem and a statistics problem. Um, definitional because it's hard to know exactly what you define, how you define a good police officer. It has to be more than just someone who doesn't have a lot of excessive force or civilian complaints. Um, what are they doing that's positive? And unfortunately, um, in a lot of departments over time, the easiest thing to measure is productivity, arrests, stops, ticket citations. Well, we need to get away from that. We need to get away from measuring police success through the you know, number of enforcement actions they take. We know that that doesn't seem to have that much of an impact on either people's sense of public safety or actual crime rates. So just figuring out how to even define what we mean by success and then, you know, so we, what we're even trying to measure is part of it. And then the second part, of course, would be isolating the impact of this program as opposed to other things. There are so many confounding variables in policing. Um, it's daunting when you're studying any aspect of it, right? And so we expect that we would face the same problems here. We happen to be at Georgetown University, which has kind of a lot of resources on this area, and we happen to be in city with places like the lab and other, you know, organizations who we are absolutely planning on calling upon to um, help us figure out these really difficult questions. Because not only do we need to be able to show it succeeds so that we can justify its continued existence, that we think we think it's successful based on sort of our anecdotal impression of things, but we also need to measure how it's succeeding, and we can figure out why and what about the program is working, and that will help us figure out how to expand it and, and where to expand it. You said something there that I want to unpack just a little bit because I think it's a very important point that good policing is more than just seeing uses of force and complaints and things go down. What are some of the options for how we might start thinking about how to quantify the kind of more positive things that officers do? Yeah, so I feel like this is about, you know, the $60 million question in policing. But I, I think that 
one of the measurements that we will always have to pay attention to is what is the community's perception of policing and what are what are police officers' own perception of, of their um, value and what they add. And right now, the way that we do that is through surveys of community members, and we try to do that um, in ways that are you know, really kind of complex because it's very easy to sort of, if you take the survey on the wrong day and there was just a really bad YouTube video that came out the day before, you'll get a very different answer by this particular police department, even though that incident involved the police department 2,000 miles away. So that's where the rubber hits the road. You know, that's what this is all about, is making sure that people, you know, feel that the police officers who work for them are actually serving them and helping them, not oppressing them and abusing them and, and are working for somebody else or just to lower crime rates, independent of how that actually makes people feel. So that's part of what you measure. But there are sort of ways that we try to get at that. People measure things like use of um, public space. Police are doing a good job. People should feel comfortable in parks and places like that where maybe previously they didn't because they feel safe there. Sometimes people measure things like homicide clearance rates. If people are cooperating with police, you should be able to solve more homicides. So there's a lot of different things, but all of those things have other things that are impacting them at the same time. So trying to figure out what's actually causing any improvement is, is really challenging. This question of trust, and maybe I'll come at this in a slightly different way, which is a theme or a thread that's come up at a couple of different times about both looking at the curriculum and it seems like a lot of it is trying to teach people about the history in the district and kind of different perspectives that the community might have from officers. The, re- the team from Georgetown, yourself, you all have very interesting backgrounds, both on the police force, as academics, somebody who was at prison before, and it brings up this perspective giving gap I think that sometimes there I remember this there's this pew poll just a year ago I think asking people about um, whether they understood the challenges that police officers face on the job and something like eight out of ten people in the public said yeah we get it and only one out of ten police officers agreed that the public actually got it suggesting there's this kind of big gap in what we understand about each other at the police force in the community I'd be curious just to hear you speak to what you think are some of the biggest misunderstandings from both directions? I think what we've heard from a lot of the fellows is just the perception that's given to about officers on social media. It really came up with the session with the juveniles and the fellows talking about, you know, talking directly to the kids on one-on-one interactions about, hey, look, just because you saw this, that doesn't represent our department. It doesn't represent majority of police in this country. It doesn't represent, you know, the experience that, that you will have. And certainly, you know, each of these bad incidents that's happened, you know, kind of cuts under that piece. But I think, you know, we've seen a lot of discussion in particular from the fellows about the role of social media in terms of uh, perception and law enforcement. How do you counteract that? How do you build that positive image? And how do you reinforce that experience in a profession that has the ability to have negative interactions? Many times when the police are called, it is an it is a inherently negative situation. It's someone's out of control, someone's hurt, someone's injured. Police are not not showing up because someone's birthday is tomorrow and you know and 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 so how do we then entrust the brand where if a metropolitan police department officer comes to the door you know you're getting a professional officer on every encounter who cares and who is compassionate and is, is committed to fair constitutional and unbiased policing 
obviously there are misperceptions on both sides. And, you know, one of the things that one of the speakers in, in one of the workshops we had said to our fellows was, you know, you drive around and you see these groups of, you know, young African-American men standing on the corner and you're thinking to yourself, they're up to no good, you know, or they wouldn't be just standing around the corner like that. Well, why are they standing around on the corner? Often they're standing around on the corner because they come from very poor families that have six or seven or eight people, you know, crammed into a one-bedroom apartment, and there's nowhere to go. Uh, you know, they just don't have any. They don't have nice big rec rooms with, you know, big screen TVs to hang around in. They're standing on the corner because they don't have anywhere else to go. And your assumption that they must be, like, only a delinquent or a criminal would be hanging around doing nothing may be completely wrong. You know, there are some bad people standing on corners, but there are a lot of people standing on corners just because they don't really have anywhere else to go. And and when and you, and you see that, you know, our fellows kind of going, huh, yeah, huh, I never thought of that. And maybe there's this sort of feedback loop where, you know, if the police drive by and look at the kids standing on the corner like, I think you're all about to commit a crime, uh, and then the kids give them dirty looks back because they feel angry and insulted by that. And why do you assume that I'm about to commit a crime and so on? And that can, you, know, you can get a kind of a spiral of mistrust that forms, or you can try to find ways to break that spiral of mistrust and get to know some of those kids and talk to them, get to know their names and get out of your car. And, and those are hard things to do. They're hard things to do for all kinds of reasons, including the fact that Often officers are very, very busy. They've got a lot of calls to get to. They feel like, I don't have time to do that. You know, I'm the radio's calling. I got to go somewhere else. I wish I could. But, you know, and having those conversations and say, huh, I would like to get out of my car and have those conversations, but I don't have time. Well, is there something that could be changed about how we do calls or how we have, whether we have more footbeats or whatever? How do we how do we break out of these patterns where we don't get a chance to get to know people? There's not a solution to any of these problems. You know that they're problems because they're really hard. But getting this group of people to really start thinking in a very different way about their own assumptions as well as about what assumptions people in the community might have about them and why. What about in the other direction? Are there things that if you haven't been a police officer before, you maybe just, you know, don't have a full appreciation for some of those challenges? I think community members often don't realize the impact that the broader criminal justice structure has on policing. One thing they do is they think that all police are the same, which of course is not true. So if you have a bad experience with one police officer, you're going to you might think others are like that or if you see something on social media. But that only explains part of it. Part of it is that there are a lot of arrests and stops and citations, particularly in some communities. And the police officers are doing the job that we the people have told them to do. And I think a lot of times we don't take responsibility for that as voters as prosecutors as judges and police officers take the blame for that because that's the literally the face of our democracy that's who community members see in their communities you know enforcing these laws in the way that they're enforcing them um, and so I think there's I think that's a misunderstanding that's the police that are driving a lot of, of what we don't like about policing when it actually it's a much broader structure and then on the other end I think the biggest misperception that they have about communities is that you're either anti-police or you're pro-police and you're going to be anti-police if you're involved in crime and you're going to be pro-police if you're a law-abiding community member and and they don't understand sometimes, in my uh, experience, that people can be both pro-police and anti-police. People can want more policing and less policing at the same time. They want to be protected. They want to, the police to be there when they need them. But they want to feel like the police work for them and, and are on their side, not like they're there just to harass them and write them tickets and, and you know, to, to assume that they're criminals. 
Does a program like this exist in other departments or jurisdictions? That, that's a really good question. So when Ben and Rosa first told me about this idea, it was such a good idea. It was hard for me to imagine it didn't already exist somewhere. So I started talking to many of my colleagues, both in the police profession and in you know, doing reform work around the country. And it turns out that there are similar programs, at least in terms of content, for, as Ben mentioned, it's sort of the mid to senior level, you know, leaders of a department. So you're trying to get work through the promotion sort of field. You know, we think we, they identify people who think they might be good and they try to give them this sort of knowledge. And a lot of this content is taught in academies throughout the country. But what makes this program really unique and that results in a benefit that I did not expect before this program is focusing on this group of officers as they are leaving the academy and entering into the workforce. We know the, the importance of this time in officers' lives. It's why we have field training officers and field training programs. Once you're out of the academy, we want to make sure you're still getting training while you're confronting the actual issues of policing. But what those field training programs rarely include is this sort of theory uh, married up with sort of actual interactions with communities in addition to your daily police work. And that, I think, for me at least, I have been astounded at the impact that appears to be having on officers. They come back during these uh, monthly workshops just talking to each other about something they experienced and how they used what they learned at the workshop last month to, you know, resolve, to de-escalate a situation, for example, that they had with somebody. And that, I think, has been, is really um, encouraging, and that's, I think, why it's the training of tomorrow, right? It really just provides with a new way of thinking about training and how to bring up these sort of field training officer programs to, to really give uh, officers what they actually need to connect with communities more than they do right now. Curious why there aren't more programs like this? I mean, you could imagine someone saying that, or having the intuition that, as an officer, learning a lot about your immediate community gain experience, how to deal with mental health and some of these issues might be considered to be something you'd kind of expect in core training. Why do you think this has been slow to develop? Well, I, I think when you look at this, it's really the partnership that's here, which is which is part of the beauty of this formula. And D.C. is, you know, obviously a very uh, rich city in terms of experience and in terms of the, you know, the prowess of Georgetown and other schools that are uh, there, when we were approached with this concept, it, it made sense and it fit in. And I think we've invested so heavily at ranks in leadership within the department. We've focused on developing our mid-leaders and our senior leaders within the department. But we haven't necessarily taken a step back and saying, what are the officers on the street experiencing? So one of the big pushes that I've had in terms of looking at the recruiting process is it's not just simply getting the person in the door. That's the first component. The second component is developing them throughout the academy. Then the third component is developing them in field training. And so really when you look at recruiting, it's more than just simply hiring somebody and saying, hey, we did it, you know, they're on board. It's getting them to the point where they're connected to their career. They understand the broader mission that they're trying to do and how the agency leadership really internalizes that. And I think our fellows through this program are getting a, a very advanced course in all sorts of issues that really our, our leadership in the department is facing those challenges and dealing with those various topics and issues, but yet the officers are starting to engage on those topics, which will benefit them throughout their career. One of the things that's actually been really exciting for us is that even the very minimal publicity when we launched this program kind of got the word out there a little bit. And so we have been approached, for instance, by some folks in New Orleans who are visiting us this week and coming to our workshops who are interested in starting a similar kind of program in New Orleans. So our hope, as we both try to build on the 
success of our pilot program here in Washington, D.C., our hope is that it will become something that can be a model for similar efforts in other cities. And we've, in fact, been having some conversations about are there ways we can put together, for instance, our workshop materials and sort of as packaged modules that uh, we could provide to other departments that are interested in, in using these materials and having these conversations themselves to, to, to make it a little bit easier for them to get started if they want to do something like this. And I think the thing that's fantastic as an opportunity for us about this is the nation's capital. Uh, and people do look to the, the D.C. Police Department sort of punches above its weight in the sense that it's, you know, 10 percent the size of, say, the New York City Police Department. But because it's the nation's capital, people do look to it as a model, and you, you, have a, you have a bit of a bully pulpit. I don't think this is a program that would work in a department that's really struggling just to figure out how to, you know, not violate people's constitutional rights on a daily basis. It's very hard to sort of be innovative and to bring policing to the next level when you're just trying to get people up to par, right? But with 18,000 law enforcement agencies in this country, there are plenty of departments that a program like this could really do a lot of uh, positive impact in. I think as other departments hear more about this, yet again, the Metropolitan Police Department will be looked to as a model agency, and the, and the work that Georgetown has been done will, will be replicated with other agencies, and this could turn into a full center. And I know that there's been talks and ambitions and goals of expanding this to a national in, initiative and really having exceptional off, officers, not only from the Metropolitan Police Department, but every large city agency or small jurisdiction come together and talk about some of these issues. And this is the future of policing, and these are the topics that will be later built into training for all members as well. The podcast at D.C. is brought to you by The Lab at D.C., an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor of the District of Columbia. The show is hosted by David Yoakum and produced by Carissa Minnick. Check out our archive of conversations on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you subscribe to podcasts.